Sin and selfishness poison every relationship, but God is the perfect picture of love and patience. In this episode, the groom initiates intimacy with his bride, but she is consumed with her own desire and dismisses him, only to realize the hurt that she's caused. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. Turn your Bibles over to Song of Songs, chapter 5. We are on our way, making our way through uh, the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, as is more appropriately called, the chief of the songs. And uh, last week we finished with uh, chapter 4, and how the, the man described his, his lover, his, the, the woman that he loved so much, and um, they spent the night together. And so uh, this morning what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the second dream. So if you remember, this is, uh, there are two ways that we can look at Song of Songs. This, is, this is, has been seen throughout church history as a, an, an allegory of the relationship between God and humanity, or Jesus and the church. This also can be seen as uh, God's description of, of uh, what the marriage bed looks like between a husband and a wife in a physical relationship, in their sexual relationship. And so um, what we're going to notice this morning is that this is actually uh, one of the not-so-rosy pieces of Scripture. This is where reality kind of comes into the text, because it'd be great for us to, to think, you know, hey, man, our, our relationship, our physical relationship as a couple is perfect. You know, we, uh, we enjoy ourselves every single time, that we're just enraptured in each other's love. This is we're passionate. There's nothing that gets in the way. But the reality is, is that we live in broken bodies. We have broken minds, and we have uh, broken spirits, and so things don't always work the way that we expect them to work. And so when it comes to our relationship with each other, it's important for us to see what Scripture has to say about these, these places that are challenging for us in our relationships. And, and the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is the most intimate, painful, and vulnerable place that we can experience hurt. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 2. So Shulamith, the woman, has uh, finished her description of, of her lover, and they have, they have spent the night together, and we've, we've, we saw at the end of the first verse of chapter 5 that God is calling from heaven and uh, encouraging them to enjoy themselves in their relationship. So now this scene's going to open up, and Shulamith is going to be, um, we're going to find her dreaming again. So she's already had one dream about, about her man, and she's going to have another dream about him. So starting in verse 2, it says this. It says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with drops of the night. What she's talking about here is we find her that she sleeps, but her heart is awake. This is that place in between being asleep and coming to for the morning. We can kind of picture her... Um, laying in her bed, and she is um, just waking up. The dawn is about to break. She is kind of in that place between half asleep and half awake, and she hears him at the door. Um, but she says, okay, who is this? She said, it's the voice of my beloved. So as she begins to wake up, she hears his voice outside the door that he has come, right? Either uh for an unexpected rendezvous or after a long day of responsibilities, a long night of work, it talks about uh, that he knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love. Right after coming home, he finds himself locked out. This is supposed to be a place where he's supposed to be welcome, but the door's locked and he can't get in. So he calls out to her to see if she'll let him in. See, the emphasis, though, on this episode, think about this in your lives and your marriages, the emphasis here is not necessarily if they're married or unmarried like it has been before, but this is a testimony to the difficulty of their relationship. So he comes home ready to see his girl, and she's locked him out. And so she's, she finds herself in this dream. He's at the door. He's knocking. He wants her to let him in, but she won't. So he calls out to her. He says, he says my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. See, the first thing that he does is he calls out to his maiden, but the sound of his voice isn't enough to persuade her to open the door. And so he begins to praise her. So he uses these terms, my sister, right? This suggestion is a title of permanence. You always have your sister as your sister always. So as we are sisters in Christ, 
to our husbands the same way husbands are brothers in Christ to their wives, you will always be this if you're in a relationship with Christ. So he calls to her, he says, my sister, that's what he's talking about. We are are connected in a covenant relationship that's never going to be terminated. He says, my love, my dove. Uh, Doves, we've talked about this before, doves are one of the few animals that mate for a lifetime. And so he's calling her his his faithful and and righteous bride. Uh, He's speaking to her fidelity and her faithfulness and their relationship. And he calls her his perfect one. The language here doesn't point necessarily to her being flawless, but it points to her ethical and moral blamelessness. He's praising her for her character. He's giving her a reputation to live up to. So he says, my sister, my love, my dove, my, my committed one, my perfect one. And he says, my head has been covered with dew. This is the last appeal from the lover as he describes his condition as he seeks her out. Remember how the, before the text described him as a shepherd, right? This is a man of the wilderness, a man of the, of the wild. And so he says, essentially, I've been out all night. I'm covered with dew from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I have been out in the wilderness and I need rest. I need you. I need to be with you. He's trying to tell her where he's been and what he's been doing. He, um, one of the things here is that he's alluding to the custom of lovers, which is often and willing that they often willingly suffer these kind of inconveniences for the hopes of being with them again. You know, there is uh, there's a very real thing for men that they do enjoy their work, but when they come home, they want to be with their bride. And one of the things that he's speaking to here is he says, I, I, not, I haven't just had a long day. I have been purposefully thinking about this moment since I began my work that he's been working hard in the fields, he's been with his sheep, he's been out in the world. And the only thing that has been bringing him hope is that he's been thinking about that moment whenever he's going to be able to walk in the door and see his girl. And so he has a proper uh, desire for her. So there's a couple of things here that he appeals to her. He appeals with his, uh, he, he is drawn by the appeal of his presence that simply knowing that he sought her out was, uh, and was at the door might have been persuaded, hopefully, if she sees me at the door, she'll come, and she's going to let me in, right? If my girl cares about me, she's going to want me to be in with her, right? He hopes that. He hopes, well, maybe if I call out to her, right, the sound of his voice is going to get her to open the door for him, but that doesn't seem to work either. And so he gives the specific request, open the door. Baby, open the door. Let me in. But that doesn't shake her either. And so he begins to uh, give a warm and affectionate appeal to her and giving her tender and beautiful names that he calls her, hoping it would melt her heart. But nowhere else in the song does he pour out like, pour out like this to her, these affectionate names. But so this is a man who is not just at the door wanting to get in. This is a man who has the best intentions and expectations for his woman that we're supposed to be together, but why aren't you opening the door? And so, in spite of all of these things, and describing his discomfort and all the things that he has gone through, um, we now see back behind the curtain what's happening with Shulamith. So why would she make him wait outside? Let's look at this next verse. She responds, she says, I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handle of the lock. I opened opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. So let's go back and look at these, these pieces here. She says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? In response to his warm appeal to let him in, she begins to think in her mind all the reasons why it would be uncomfortable for her to get out of bed. I'm tired. I've had a long day. I really, I'm really enjoying this bed right now. This comfort is really nice. Yeah, he needs me. Yeah, he wants me, but that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. She's comfortable in her bed. 
So she couldn't be bothered with the inconvenience of dressing herself and preparing herself for sleep again, right? She says, I washed my feet. How can I defile them? She's like, I've already washed my face. I've already, I've already, I've already gone, to, gone to bed. I'm in bed. And now you're going to disrupt me. I've already set my mind, my expectations on falling asleep. She's more interested in her comfort than in her love. We see this in marriages for both men and women, right? A marriage is a lot of work and requires sacrifice, sacrificing our comfort. So if you haven't gotten here yet, I'm going to go ahead and take a wild swing. And if you are married, if you've been married longer than a week, you probably have had this time where it's like, I just want to go to sleep. I just want you to leave me alone and I just want to go to sleep, right? And so what we see here is that this, this is a picture of reality. He's like, babe, I thought we were going to hang out. I thought we were going to like... <laughs> You know, be with each, like, we, like, we've been doing all, like, I've been trying to do everything I can. I've been doing the dishes, you know, I made sure that the kids were down, I did all this stuff, right? And, like, okay, we're even going to bed, like, early. We're going to bed at 8.45 or something. It's like, okay, well, there's obviously expectations. Oh, my goodness, but you want to go to sleep. Okay, cool. Yes, awesome. Cool. So she says, how can I, this is an interesting phrase in these verses, Often in scripture or in ancient Hebrew literature, these are this kind of a phrase, how can I, in the original Hebrew, is uh, actually connected to mourning and lamentation. That she is thinking about, oh, how can I get out of bed? How can I? She, this is the same as something that someone would say at a funeral. Like she's gone, this is like the most devastating news ever that she's got to get out of bed and go let her, let her man in the door. And she just, she just can't take it. But this reflects here a petulant unwillingness to act rather than the impossibility of loving her man. That she appears unwilling to put herself to any trouble, even for her lover. That bear in mind, he's outside the door asking her to invite him in, and she won't move. Let's talk about some of the elements here. So she says, my robe, I've already taken off my robe, right? This is different than the one that we talked about in chapter four. This is the, this is the inner garment. This is the undergarment, uh, which uh, is something that's, that lays close to the skin. One commentator said that basically this implies that she's laying in bed unclothed, that she is comfortable in her space, that she is, she is totally at ease. She's like, I got to get up. I got to get dressed. I got to put this on and that on just to answer the door. And the reality is that there's something bigger at stake here. Now, it could be that she was simply not willing to be inconvenienced. You know, perhaps she didn't appreciate the unexpected nature of his visit, right? This is just not a good time. I still love you, but this isn't a good time. Um, or perhaps this was an effort to control the relationship. This is something that's very real. This is the, uh, the silent treatment, pull away, hoping you can make it they make a cheap point in your relationship game that we play. If you've been married for any season of time or if you've been in a relationship for any season of time, this is a very real thing. I'm going to deny you affection, whether physical, emotional, whatever, so that I can manipulate you to come to my my frame of thought, my side of an argument. This is not healthy in a relationship. This is not healthy for a marriage. If the purpose of marriage defined by Ephesians 5 is that we are supposed to sacrifice ourselves for each other, it's the picture of Jesus with the church, right? Jesus died. Think about this. Not just the the ultimate apex of of creation that Jesus died on the cross, but Jesus lived 30 years of a forgetful, quiet life in simple obedience to the Lord, to the Father. So that means that as all all of the rest of the world is moving on, and his friends are getting married, and his brothers and sisters are growing up and growing old and thinking about all the things that they're going to be, he lived in quiet submission to what the Father called him to do. Husbands, this is your job as you love your wives. As we saw the lover standing at the door, he's not breaking it down. He's not forcing his way in. What he's doing is he is quietly loving his girl from the other side of the door. And so she has responded in a way, in the same picture of Jesus and the church, she has responded in indifference. She says, okay, okay, yeah, you call me sweet names and you've been out working 
and, and serving. You have, you have stayed up all night. You're covered with dew. You're uncomfortable from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. But you know what? I would rather stay in bed because I'm comfortable here. This is a picture of a woman who is trying to manipulate for what she wants, not for what's best for the marriage or what's best for the relationship. And so she has tried to manipulate him. So her problem wasn't that she didn't go to the door. It was that she did it so slowly and reluctantly, making excuses all along the way. You see, as your marriage gets more tiring and busy, there's a temptation to put your spouse last on the list. You will notice this as you begin to have children, as you begin to grow into your careers, as you begin to do things, your spouse just keeps dropping one notch at a time in priority to your, to your life. And you begin to take them for granted. And you start to think, oh, well, you know, we're always going to be married. We're always going to be together. And next thing you know, we see what we have seen in, in so many older marriages that have been married for 30, 40 years, and they, all it is is they're counting a number. They sleep in separate beds. They sleep on separate floors of the house. They do their own life separately. Their children grow up and leave, and there's no warmness. There's no romance. There's no intimacy. That slowly, one decision at a time, a child takes the place of a spouse, or a career takes the place of a spouse, or an endeavor takes the, the place of a spouse. And what happens is we wake up in 20 years and we realize that we're married to a roommate, a stranger. What's happening here is that she takes her her covenant relationship with this man, and she makes it cheap. She makes it disposable. She takes it for granted. How often do we do that with, do the, do we do that with Christ? Oh, well, you know, Jesus loves me. Ah, oh, the sin's not going to matter. I'll do this little rebellion. That's fine. You know? We're slow to obey. My mother used to tell me that delayed obedience is disobedience. I have never forgotten that that when God calls us to do something like love our wife, like love our husband, that's a command. That is a command from God himself to love each other, not just in sacrifice, I'm going to go bring home the bacon, but actually doing things for the benefit of the relationship, doing things for the benefit of the marriage. That means having sex when you don't want to. That means serving your wife when she's not going to have sex with you. That means making sure that you are, you are ultimately looking out for the best interests of your relationship and your marriage. This is all about sacrifice. This is all about, about immediate obedience, not delayed obedience. This is how we destroy our marriages one day at a time, that we make compromises and we begin to take each other for granted. And then all of a sudden we realize that we have destroyed our lives. See, this is a remarkable picture of the kind of adjustments that are, adjustments that are necessary in life uh, as in a married marriage relationship. One, one commentator put it this way. He said, Our natural sloth, the differences between a man and a woman, our uncertainty about the other's thinking, the variations in our life rhythms, our unwillingness to alter our, our preferred patterns for the other, our own self-consciousness, all contribute to the problem of reading each other's advances. Now, here's something I want to I remind you about, is that Song of Solomon is not just some fanciful, you know, love poem about how great sex is going to be all the time. There's real truth here. Like, this is a very real relationship piece of, of our married lives together. Expectations, those pesky little things that get in the way of our obedience to God. Right? You think, oh man, we've done, we, we've done, I've done everything right, and yet my spouse is not responding to me in the way that I think that they should. Where do those expectations come from? They come from a heart that is desperately wicked, One of the things that I read also as I was researching this is that um, although this, this romance is, is an ideal, it's not fantasy, it's realistic, and it presents the realistic problems of marriage, but also the principles of solving them. So look at this right here. Look at how the, how the, how the man responds. Uh, the next thing is, is she says, my beloved put his hand on the latch of the door. She could hear him right there. He calls to her, he praises her, he tells her what he's gone through, how he feels, what's, what's happening in his life, and she responds coldly. And sure enough, he's like, well, maybe, maybe it's unlocked. Maybe, maybe she really is asleep. Maybe she's, she just left it unlocked for me. So he grabs the latch of the door, but sure enough, it's bolted. But notice 
in a picture of Jesus and the church that he doesn't feel entitled. He doesn't break down the door. He doesn't rush in. He doesn't take what he wants because she's his. He's only going to act if she invites him in. One of the biblical pictures of sexual strength in a man is that it's reserved and under control. A man who is living biblically, a man who is living and chasing Jesus, who's abiding in what God has called him to be as a man, will not have to manipulate his family to get respect. He will not have to demand something that should come naturally to a man who's following Jesus. He is not going to have to abuse his authority to get what he wants. A man of God is primarily a man who's confident, who understands that God made him to be a certain way, to walk in a certain way, and as a result, if his wife follows him or not, that doesn't matter because his primary relationship is vertical. It's with God. And so he doesn't have to be vulnerable. A worldly man would, would, would demand what he, what he knows that he should get, and he's going to break in the door, and he's going to get what he wants. But a godly man, just like Jesus, not busting open the doors of our hearts, he sits there and he knocks. And he waits. He waits for us to come to him, to invite him to come into our lives. This is a picture of godly masculinity. He checks the door and it's locked. So she gets up and says, I arose to open for my beloved. It wasn't that she refused to open it. She was just delayed. Delayed out of her own self-interest and indulgence. So here's what uh, one writer what they, what they said. They gave us an emotionally accurate picture of maybe some of the dynamics that are happening in this conflict here. That the maiden felt resentment toward the beloved because of her interrupted comfort. That possibly the beloved refused to force himself upon his maiden and would only enter at her invitation. That the beloved made a true and persistent appeal to his maiden that they might be together and enjoy their relationship. But because of her resentment, the maiden long delayed her response to the, to the desire of her beloved. And when she finally did response, it seemed too late. He wasn't there. You know, in, pl- in applying this dynamic to the conflict of our relationships, we can easily reverse these roles. This isn't just the woman withholding herself from the man to manipulate him. This can happen vice versa as well. Men are very bad at pulling themselves away from their wives. This is a very real thing that they go and they, they, they turn introverted this way and they begin to stop sharing what's going on with them. They stop sharing about their feelings and what's happening, how they're processing the issues of their life. This isn't just a women problem. This is a human problem. That we have a responsibility as men to be vulnerable with our wives. The idea that a, that a man never cries is not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical principle. The idea that a man doesn't share in intimacy with his wife, how he's feeling, what he's going through, that is not a biblical principle. Our wives are our flesh. They are tied to us. We are, they are connected to us, and so we should be vulnerable with them. And so men can be just as guilty as manipulating their wives as, as women can. You know, here, here's a scenario. It's been a long week. He's stressed, really wanting to have sex. It's been a long week. She's stressed. She really wants to go to sleep. So they crawl into opposite sides of the bed, and he turns over to make an advance to her, And she says no. And so she rolls over thinking, I can't believe him. Does he not know the kind of week I've had? Are you serious right now? And his response, he goes, okay, well, chalk that one up again. And before they know it, Satan begins to whisper in both of their ears that that person on the other side of the mattress doesn't really care about you, that they don't really get what you need. That somehow that they are, they are selfish, and that they don't, they don't, they're not interested in making sure that you're taken care of. So the reality is, is that we, as we walk through these real life scenarios, we have to understand and see things from our spouse's perspective, and to love them no matter what kind of a thing has happened. See, the to 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 be in that moment and to only think about yourself is short sighted, right? The reality is, is if you focus on serving each other, both of you will have rest. Both of you will be fulfilled. Both of you will find satisfaction in your marriage. One can't always take and one can't always give. You both have to give. 100% on both sides. So she gets up to try to 
get to her husband get to get to her husband behind the door. <sighs> this silent treatment is not working. She realizes that wow, he's he's gone. But as she touches the latch, she notices that something is is different. It says that my hands dripped with myrrh. So as she finally got out of bed and came to the door, she noticed that there was perfume that had anointed the handle. It was a custom among the ancient peoples to anoint doors uh, using uh, that are being used by a bride uh, in the bridal chamber. This is the same custom, right? What he's doing is he is leaving behind a love note for her. That this is a this is a royal fragrance. He just simply left her a hey baby I love you I know you're busy right now, I'll see you later. See in this culture. Um, a lover would leave a, a fragrant oil on the door as a sign that he'd been there. So that just in case, thinking the best of her, maybe she's just not home. Maybe she's out. Maybe she's just not inside. Maybe she's really asleep. And so when she comes to the door and she touches it, she realizes, he just wanted me to know that he was here. A simple gesture. His response is not of anger, it's not of objection. He doesn't pound on the door to wake her up. He doesn't throw a fit, but simply a non-threatening display of love. It would soon awaken, she would, she would wake up and, and she would love what he left behind. This is a wonderful picture of a way a, a husband should respond when he feels disrespected by his wife. Instead of angrily demanding respect, he should instead display his love for her in a non-threatening way and wait for the response of her love to her. This reminds me, I know it's super cheesy, but it reminds me of the movie Princess Bride. As you wish. Throughout that movie, one of the things that happens is as she is hurting him and she's disrespecting him and she's taking advantage of him, she asks him to do all these things and he just responds with, as you wish. He's simply saying to her what? I love you. Will you pick that up? Sure. Will you clean this? Sure. Hey, would you go do this thing? Sure. I can't believe you. Okay. How many times do we respond in that way to Christ? God, I can't believe that you did this. God, I can't believe I'm having to go through this. God, I can't believe this. God, I can't believe that. God, I can't believe that you're making me do these things. Lord, I'm having to go through this thing. I'm pr- what, are, what do you want from me? And what does he say? I love you. I see you're really struggling right now, and I'm going to love you anyway. And you know what? I'm right here. This is how a godly man responds. See, as we consider how we're supposed to treat our wives when they refuse us, we need to always remember that we are called to love them like Christ loved us. That means that when they metaphorically drive nails in our hands, when they hurt us, when they don't truly see the sacrifice that we're giving to them, when they don't see all the gestures of love. Our job is not to make sure that they see those things and give them proper credit. Our job is to love them as Christ loved the church. Because in the end, our responsibility as men is to present our wives to God as a loving, pure sacrifice. That is the testimony of a godly man, is when he presents his wife to the Father. Not because he has, he has shaped her into this, this ideal person, but because he has lived a quiet life and sacrificed himself for her. That is our presentation to God as men. So she opens the door, but he's not there. He says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. She finally comes to the door. She shakes off all this self-indulgence and laziness, maybe a, a desire to control their relationship, and she finds out that her love's gone. She's too late. You know, one of the things that um, one of the things that's interesting about marriage is that over time, there we can develop this entitlement, where we start to think that our our spouse is always going to be there. There's going to be a punching bag, but the truth is that we're human beings, and everyone has limits. We we we. I, I mean, I heard a story just a couple weeks ago about a marriage that they struggling, they were living independent lives, and then. The adult kids find out, oh, whoa, my parents just like nonchalantly mentioned they're getting a divorce. They've got a divorce. It's finalized and mom's moving away. Like, this is a thing. 
when we're, in, when we're unintentional about our marriages, that we have to remember that this is a human being who needs us. God has given us a, a responsibility to love them and to sacrifice for them. And that there are limits to what a person can, can deal with. And so she opens the door and he's gone. Her entitlement, her, her delayed obedience, her short-sightedness, right? That he's just, he's gone. But, but in, in his mind, he was there to present himself. All of his motives were pure. He's not spiting her. He's not trying to punish her. He, he, uh, he has to go get rest, but she's not letting him in. And so she calls for him. Says, I called him, but he gave me no answer. See, what's interesting is now the roles are reversed. He was calling to her, hey, let me in, baby, let me in. She doesn't let him in. So she comes to the door finally. Oh, open the door. Wait, he's not there. She, while she was laying in bed half asleep, she loved the idea of him. She loved him, but she let her own selfishness get in the way, and so it drug, she drug her feet. And so when she opens the door, she realizes that he's gone. And so she begins to yell for him, but he can't be found. She waited too long to respond. See, if we consider all that's happening in the context of the story, it lends to the idea that this is in fact a dream, right? This is something that, this is similar to what we've experienced before, that she misses him. She, she begins to seek him out, right? And... Um, we begin to see, if you've ever been in those dreams where you want things to be a certain way, but you can never seem to quite make them the way that you want them, you're chasing someone, you can't catch them, or you're, you're looking for something and can't find it, this is what's happening. She's in, in the beginning of her dream, she is feeling good, she's feeling content, and she is feeling very good in her own pleasure, in her own comfort. But now all of a sudden, she switches to emergency because she can't find him. And so she goes looking. The next verse in verse 7 says, The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you can find my beloved, that you tell him that I'm lovesick. The watchmen, we, we, we actually saw them uh, earlier. That uh, Remember, she, she came across the watchmen frantically looking for a lover, and she like, asks them, and then all of a sudden she sees him, and she, so she leaves them behind. Here, we see the watchmen not so friendly says that they wound her and they struck her. This is similar to what we've seen in, in chapter 3, but this time it ends in disappointment because she didn't find him. The watchmen aren't any help. And so since this happened in a dream, it's not real, but it represents the desperation that she feels. These people who are supposed to have answers for me, they don't have answers for me. They should know where he is because they're the watchmen. They keep watch. And so she can't find help from others, and so she is, she becomes to be guilty. So it says that the keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. In her dream, uh, this is not, this is not what, uh, sorry, not only was the maiden unsuccessful, but those who were supposed to sympathize with her didn't. The veil here before, in, uh, in chapter one and four, the veil represents her being a bride, right? But this is a different use of this word. This actually means like a head covering or a scarf. Okay, so instead of saying that, that they've taken away the innocence of her relationship, the purity of her relationship with her husband, what this is saying is that this scarf, uh, it, it implies decency and modesty. In Middle Eastern culture, a woman, they, women cover their hair because hair is something that is seen as an intimate part of a woman's body, and so they cover them with, with, uh, with cloth. So what she's saying is they took my veil, they took my decency, they took my modesty away. Now she feels vulnerable. She doesn't know what to do. And, that, and so she calls to the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, find my beloved, tell him that I'm lovesick. This is a different use than it was before. Because before it was, I'm lovesick, I'm love, I, I'm, I'm enraptured with this man, this ecstasy of being with him. But now she's worried sick. She's not, she's not in a safe place right now. She's upset because she has rejected her, her man and now he's gone. So think about this in the application of our spiritual life, our relationship to God. Sin sickness is when a soul hates sin and wants nothing to do with it. Or self-sickness, when the soul comes to hate self-indulgence, self-seeking, self-exalting, or self-reliance of every sort. Love sickness of the first type, when the believer is so deeply moved by the love of God and they feel they can hardly bear it. But then it falls into love sickness of the second type, 
when the believer feels distanced or or deserted by God, and they long to be renewed in their sense of closeness with him. We're starting to see this this switch of a lens in Song of Songs where, yes, this is a very real part of a marriage relationship, but we can also see ourselves in our relationship with Christ. That what used to be a genuine love and passion sometimes can be a feeling of lostness. This is a very real thing. In Christian culture, we talk, that, we talk about this as being in the wilderness. I open my quiet time, I open my Bible, I read it for my quiet time, for my Bible study, and I'm tracking words on the page. There's no joy in my salvation. It makes sense that David would pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That, that love sickness in the most honest sense. Spurgeon described the second type of love sickness in this way. He said, it is the longing of a soul then, not for salvation and not even for the certainty of salvation, but for the enjoyment of present fellowship with him who has her soul's life, her soul's all. It is a panting after communion. So she asked the daughter of Jerusalem, if you find him, tell him I'm lovesick. And so the daughters respond, look at verse 9. Say, what is, your, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? They say, basically, um, what makes him so special? Why is he so special? Why are you so upset? By her response, they could tell that this man was not just another man, but something significant, right? She realizes what she's done. She realizes the, the position that she's in, that, that this is desperate. I cannot find him. So she's clearly upset that she's lost her love and that she's ridden with guilt and regret. Regret. One writer put it this way. He said, her anguish at her loss was so extreme. Her heart sickness was so agonizing. Her frenzy so bewildering that they were startled into feeling that he of whom she was bereft was no common lover. So they ask her sarcastically, O fairest of women, if he's so great, Why'd you lose him? I thought you were supposed to be the fairest of all women. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? These are the accusations of the enemy that, remember, in her dream, her appearance may have been neglected by her, uh, her days in the sun. You can see her in her dream. She's disheveled. She's not put together. She doesn't have her face on. Her hair's not put together. She didn't, she's not wearing the right outfit. She's not cute. She's not put together. She just had her scarf ripped off of her head, and so now she is vulnerable, and she is not well put together. And they're like, okay, where's he at? Because clearly you're doing a great job keeping him connected to you. So now she's in a position to where she begins to reflect on her man. This is interesting because this is one of the few times in in the Word and the few times in all poetry that a man's form is recorded. Most of the time, there's a reflection on the woman's form, her body and her her beauty, the things that God has made her as attractive, her superpower to be attractive. But now she stops to pause and contemplate what kind of a man that she has lost. So look at these verses. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves, by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping li- liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold, set with beryl. His body is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She starts off by saying, my beloved is. With this, she begins an extended description of her man from the top of his head down to the bottom of his feet. It's interesting because he did the same thing for her just in the chapter previous. Love songs typically describe the physical beauty of things that are common in in the Near East. But most of them are, they don't describe a man because a man is not typically seen as beautiful. 
But there are things about a man that are beautiful. There are things about a man that God has innately put in man, in masculinity, in biblical masculinity, that are attractive, that are good. In this rare passage of scripture, we're going to see these things. So she begins by explaining that her beloved is white and ruddy. He's chief among 10,000. Here she's she's describing him and his countenance, that he's white and ruddy. He is strong and his greatness, that he's chief among 10,000. She loved him not only for who he was to her, but also for the greatness of his character and his accomplishments. One of the things that is amazing about how God has made men is that God has made men to be strong, not just physically. Their physical strength is a representation of their spiritual strength of who God has called them to be. The confidence that comes with being a godly man. This is what she's referring to. Ruddy, most commentator, commentators take this simply as normal complexion of, health, of a healthy young man. Um, according to one, in ancient Hebrew, the word is Adam. That's interesting. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew noun Adam or man in, in Genesis, we translate it as Adam and we associate that to be his name, but the truth is that's the Hebrew word for man. That he's described, um, and it is more likely that this idea of this man, this Adam, is a source for the term, uh, which in this case means manly. She says, my guy is manly. He is strong. He is confident. He, is, he has courage and he has character. This admiration of a man's greatness is a strong motivator for accomplishment, for accomplishment even among men. A man, is very much, a man very much wants his wife to recognize whatever the greatness or accomplishments that he's attained, right? It could be, I've finished school, or I've done, I've done this thing in my career, I've accomplished this thing. All of these things are testament, a testament to my strength as a man. I started this company, I did this thing, I got this award at work, I did, I did these things. These are significant things because they're a testament to who God made me to be. We can even see this in children, Think about this. We see a little girl. She asks, hey, daddy, daddy, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see me? It's about being seen for who she is. For boys, daddy, look what I can do. Daddy, look what I can do. Daddy, watch me. Watch me do this thing. It's about accomplishment. It's about respect. It's about earning it. So she says, this man, man, he is so incredible. He is the chief among 10,000. It's a metaphor that means that he is supreme. Put him up against 10,000 other guys. I don't care. He's, he's going he's to beat them all. She says that his head is like fine gold. His locks are wavy. She talks about how she's referring to his hair and how he has a stately attractiveness to him, that he's radiant. And from the beginning, with his, starting from his head down to, his, down to the bottoms of his feet, she's going to talk about this strength. His head is like the finest gold with the idea that his face is well-proportioned and colored with the idea of equality and prestige. She says that his eyes, his eyes are like doves by the rivers, rivers of waters. His cheeks are like the bed of spices. His hands like rods of gold. His countenance like Lebanon, as excellent as cedars. Some of these things here that says that... He, that he is washed with milk and fitly set. This appears to talk about the whiteness of his eyes set with a dark pupil. That his eyes are kind. But there is, there is a sweetness to him. His cheeks are like a bed of spices. In the ancient world, men would, uh, since they didn't have you know, modern hygiene products, what they would do is that they would oil their beards. One of the most regal things that a man can do is grow a beard. And so what happens is that, that these men would oil their beards and they would fill it with fragrances. And so what she's saying is that your cheeks are like a bed of spices. I love what one commentator said. He said, but it has been supposed to refer to his beard, which a young, well-made man is exceedingly beautiful. I have seen young Turks who have taken much care in their beards, their mustaches, etc. They look majestic. Scarcely anything serves to set off the human face greater than the advantage of the beard. I really like this part. <laughs> when kept in proper order, females admire it in their, in, their suitors, in their suitors and husbands. I have known cases where they not only dis, uh, despised but execrated Europeans whose faces were closely shaven. The men uh, perfume their beards often, and this, wa- this may be what is intended by spices and sweet-smelling myrrh. The idea is that 
when she sees her man, he is all man. He is not a baby face. This is something that, that she admires in him. She says that his countenance is like Lebanon. Lebanon is, uh, is one of the mountains that is around Jerusalem, and um, it is the tallest of all of them. So what she's saying is that not only is he one in 10,000, not only is he beautiful to look at, but if you compare him to all the, other, all the others, he's a mountain and everybody else is just a little hill. That's what she's describing here. Watchman Nee, one of, the, one of the writers of the last century, he had some great notes on this, and I want to share them. He, he referred to the, the white and ruddy as the complexion of perfect health. This indicated that he was vibrant with fullness and life and power, that his head was like the finest gold. This is a description of his divine attributes. He possessed God's life and God's glory. His locks are wavy and black as a raven, an indication of an everlasting vigor and power. His eyes are like doves. Eyes are the seat of expression, and this description also speaks of an intimacy known by the spouse. That his lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. The lilies refer uh, to the kingly glory here. How glorious were the teachings of Christ. Husbands, let me ask you. Do your lips drip sweet like myrrh because you carry the words of Christ on them? When you speak to your wife, when you speak to your children, when you speak to those around you, do you speak with a sweetness? When people see you, when they hear you speaking, when they hear you teaching, do they hear Christ's words? Because it is the medicine for a hungry soul, a, a injured soul. It is the lifeblood for those who need help. This is a defining characteristic for a man of God is that they carry Christ's words on their lips. They are a man of the word. And in doing so, everything that comes out of their mouth is sweet says that his hands are, are rods of gold. This lends to strength, uh, the strength in his hands and to establish firmly and to bring to completion the purposes of God. He is a man who is determined to do what God wants him to do. His hands are like gold, valuable. What he does is valuable. His body is carved ivory. Think about this too, that the Lord Jesus too was a person rich with the deepest sensibilities, that he was moved with great feelings of love for his people. Carved ivory is a regal thing. His legs are pillars of marble. They signify his power and where he stands. That a man of God not only is strong from the top of his head, but he also is strong in where he stands. That he is a, a temple for God. As he walks around, as, as he walks into places of significance, as he deals with people, he stands on the authority of who God has made him to be as a godly, masculine person. And this is something that is not only regal, but it is incredibly strong and will stand the test of time. How many pictures have we seen of ancient Greek buildings where the only thing is left are the marble columns? This is a testament to what it means to be a man of God. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. This shows um, something of his elevated character. Even though he's a man, yet he now is a man glorified to the heights of heaven his mouth is most sweet. So she, she finishes off by saying, yes, he is altogether lovely. She's summarizing all of this. And so she's reflected on who he is and how she loves him. And so she begins to think, wow, man, this is a guy. This is a man. I can't believe I was so slow to get out of bed. Now that I have taken time to reflect on who he is and, and what God has made him, oh my goodness. I have made a mistake. This is why she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is the same word that she used before when he would call her his darling, that he is her friend. He is her, not just her lover or, her, or his companion, she is genuinely a friend. She is a dearly loved kindred spirit. So the conclusion, right, is, these, these ladies are thinking, well, why would you be so slow to respond to a man like this? Why would, you, why would you not rush to the door? You know, and a wife may think that this is the kind of man that she could love, but she should probably remember that at one time her husband was this kind of man. For those who have been married for a while, 
It can be easy to fall into thinking of just the present day and forget who we were when we were young. My challenge to you, one of them today, is as you grow old together, is to not forget who you are right now. Yes, there are things that are messy, there are things that are uncomfortable, there are things that are difficult, but the truth is that in your youth, in your strength, in where you are right now, this adventure that you're on, it may, fe- it may feel difficult, you may be anxious for that next step, but the truth is that God has given you a gift right now with each other. And don't miss it, don't miss out on that. Don't think about the next phase yet. Focus on today, focus on this phase, focus on the fact that God has given you an opportunity to be together, to enjoy each other. Whether you have little ones, whether you don't have little ones, whether you have been, you are waiting to start your family to have your children, whether you're trying to work through all of the difficulties of that, understand that God has something for you in your marriage right now. And as long as you're pining for something else, you're going to miss out on what's at the door. One of the things that I also want you to think about here, as you're walking through your life and you're thinking about all the things that, the expectations that have not been met, the ways that your relationship is difficult, things, needs that are good, that are going unmet. I want you to think about your relationship with Christ. There is no greater picture in this book than this passage right here because it paints for us an idea, a a symbol of what it looks like for us in our relationship with Christ, that he stands at the door and he knocks. He wants us to have sweet fellowship with him. But sometimes we, have, we catch ourselves being lazy in bed and we think, oh, well, no, I'm, I'm content to just be exactly where I am because, you know, godly, godly contentment is great gain, right? But the contentment has to be godly contentment. And we cannot be pining for what's next. We can't be reveling in the, the selfishness, the laziness of the moment. Our job is to be obedient and to be swift in our obedience. So as you, as you go out, as you spend this week together... And as expectations aren't met, I want to encourage you, enjoy yourselves, enjoy your family, enjoy each other. And remember that God has invited you to do things, to enjoy things with him as well. This is so much bigger than just having sex. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.